when people know they're not going to be blamed, but we are going to improve the systems, they feel so much more confident about coming to you and saying, I think I just made a mistake. I think I gave that animal the wrong medication. Tensions are running high in your hospital. Mistakes were made. Is it time to play the blame game? Welcome to a brand new episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show, a part of the VetX Leaders Community Online. In each episode, we explore ideas and subjects you can use to manage your veterinary practice better and be a better leader. I'm your resident asker of questions, Brendan Howard, and today, practice manager and consultant Tracy Sheffield with TNL Veterinary Business Consulting thinks patient safety demands you stop playing the blame game. When a mistake is made, what do you do? Sheffield wants to sell you on a hard look at processes, checklists, root cause analysis, and shared responsibility. Is it incompetence you're attacking a coworker for, or is it a failure of the process? I know Tracy's answer, and soon you will too. I was completely intrigued when you told me the topic you wanted to cover. I've known you for years, and we've talked about a lot of different things. When you mentioned to me patient safety, I thought immediately, oh, well, patient safety has been in the news the past couple of years in veterinary practices, especially in the beginning, because animals had to be picked up in the parking lot and brought in. But then I think you have a far deeper, wider interest in talking about patient safety. So take it away. Okay. Yeah. Patient safety isn't discussed and analyzed in veterinary medicine as a rule in the most productive way it could be done. And that has ramifications both for our patients and for our practice culture. Okay. Well, will you tell me what, in from your experience in the many years in veterinary practice, how do you see patient safety talked about? And how are our conversations about patient safety off or deficient? And then what would a, a better conversation be? Okay. So what we don't want to have happen is adverse events. And adverse events can be anything from sending the wrong medication home, sending an animal home with an IV catheter still in place, all the way to patient death. These are the bad things that we don't want to have happen. And when they do happen, human nature says that we blame the person who did it. We blame the assistant who took the animal out to the owner with the catheter still in place. We blame the person that sent the wrong medication home or who drew up the wrong injectable. We blame the surgeon when the patient dies. This is just human nature. You know, they did it. They're responsible. So, I mean, I would call, it's interesting you called it patient safety. I feel like that's a bigger umbrella than what I think. Exactly. Medical mistakes. I mean, you're just, well, medical mistakes, a mistake someone's made, which again, as opposed to patient safety, sounds like a mistake, sounds like it is someone's fault. Absolutely. That's what it sounds like. And so that is what we do. We blame the person who made it. When in fact... Patient safety, let me back up. A medical error is almost never the result of a single person. A medical error occurs with a series of events. It's a chain reaction that leads to a bad outcome. It's not just one person doing the wrong thing as a rule. 
And so what needs to happen when a medical error occurs, instead of blaming the person who made it, a proper analysis needs to be done. And when you do an analysis, you can learn some very surprising things, and then you can put systems in place to prevent it. So people will always make mistakes. We're human and we're always going to make them. What prevents mistakes are systems. I have a good friend who is an airline pilot, and there are three industries where mistakes really make a difference. <laughs> One is nuclear engineering, another is aviation, and the third is healthcare. Mistakes in any of those professions really have significant ramifications. So I visited with a friend of mine who is a commercial airline pilot, and he was kind enough to send me the safety manuals that his airline uses. And almost word for word, you could take things out of airline procedures and drop them into medicine very easily. For example, checklists. We use checklists all the time. Aviation uses checklists all the time. And so we use our checklists. And from day to day, week to week, and month to month, the checklists don't change. It looks the same as it did the last time you picked it up as a rule. But, oh, yeah, I'm in the office, so you might hear a, a bird chirping or the phone ringing. <laughs> We're you. used to it. <laughs> yeah, I kind of figured that wouldn't be any kind of big surprise here. So we look at that, and we know what's on that checklist pretty darn well. but. You still need to pay attention to it and go through it step by step. And the airlines have a rule with their safety checklists as you're working your way through the list. If you get interrupted while doing it, which happens, somebody comes to ask you a question or something happens when you're going through that checklist, you do not pick up where you left off. You go back to the beginning. Because that list is so familiar to you, you might skip a step. Okay, I, I want to ask. So clearly this was sort of top of your mind right now. And it may be top of your mind because of your conversation with your friend. And you you heard about this and it got you thinking about vet med. But now I want you to think back. And you don't have to choose something that's terrible that involves potential malpractice and everything. Is there a process time you can remember that sticks out for you when you think about at the time, there was a lot of blame. So I this person got blamed or this group got blamed and we didn't revisit the process. Is there one that sticks out to you? Actually, it's a case in human medicine. Okay. And you can do a search for this, but it was a nurse. She was a pediatric intensive care nurse. And by all accounts, she was so good at what she did. So good. And she made a mistake and grabbed a wrong medication and gave a patient the wrong medication. Now, this, it doesn't mitigate the damages that were done, but it was a patient not expected to survive no matter what interventions happened. So we have a critically ill patient not expected to survive and the wrong medication is given the patient does die. So the nurse is blamed. So she is told first by the hospital she needs to go to remedial training, which she does. And of course, she feels the absolute anguish of the second victim. And we'll get into the second victim here in a moment. 
She feels awful. She does all the training and still the hospital lets her go. She made the mistake. So she was responsible. The long story is she was unable to find any other employment and ultimately ended up taking her own life. When you analyze what was going on, when you do a complete and proper analysis, you look at the people who were involved. Had they just worked a double shift? Were they tired? You look at the facilities involved, how the medication are stored. Are sound alike medications stored right next to each other? How are the medications administered? You look at the environment. Were they short-staffed that day? Was she unable to focus on her? You look at all the individual pieces, and then you get a clearer picture of why and how the mistake was made. So then you can understand what kind of system needs to be put in place to prevent it from ever happening again. When you blame, you do nothing to prevent the error from happening again to somebody else because you failed to put a system in place to fix it. What do you think, having worked with and around doctors in the veterinary space, what do you think motivates people in those moments to either, first of all, I can understand if you are the person who made a mistake and you are a person with a strong conscience and an an easily triggered sense of guilt about something terrible happening, in this case, something terrible happening to an animal, and then all the human anguish that might blast out from that to the clients and the other people around you, you're going to feel guilty and ashamed and terrible immediately. And then, but what is it about the crew or what is it about the culture in a veterinary practice that you think from what you've heard about or your your experiences there might lead people to very quickly narrow away from the systems and the entire environment to the person? There's a single line, you're the weakest link. Boom, you made the mistake, so it's you. And that's human nature, is to blame the person that made the mistake. That's just what we do. We see a mistake made, they made it, it's your fault. When in fact, it may be you had somebody who had worked a double shift, you have sound-alike medications stored next to each other, and you're short-staffed and you are unable to focus properly on the issue at hand. So if you put those three things together, is that person entirely to blame? No, the circumstances prevented it. So you may need to put a system in place that somebody who's worked a double shift must have all medications double checked by someone who just came on or something like that. And in the big picture of things, systems do not have to be complicated. For example, Sending an animal home with the IV catheter still in place. Very simple system is when you put the IV catheter in, it is finished off with red vet wrap. Red vet wrap means stop catheter in place. When you remove the catheter and put the little Band-Aid on there, you put green vet wrap on. Green, good to go. Everyone on the staff is trained and you no longer send animals home with a catheter in place. It's a simple system, very easy. So systems don't have to be complicated to be very successful. Okay, that example of simply choosing, we are consistent about our use, about the color of the bandages or tape that we use in these situations. Now, finally, you entertained my question. I want to go back to the thing you talked about earlier, the checklist thing, because I remember there's a famous book that was written the past 15 years by a human surgeon, and that was his takeaway also. Checklist, checklist, checklist. 
Now you mentioned you're running through the checklist. Let's say you got, it's a 23 step checklist because there's some elaborate procedure or this is just, we want to make sure nothing gets done wrong. You get to 15, 17, 19, you get interrupted. I can feel as a person who has great sympathy for the type A, highly productive people, I can feel the pain of, and I've done this as an editor, having to go back to the beginning of a checklist and run through because now you're not sure what you've done or where you were. Internally, it's an agony of inefficiency. So checklists, we hear about these. We've heard about them in the human medical world. You just gave an example there. They happen all the time in airline mechanics. I had a brother. He trained to be an airline mechanic, and it's all about checklists and absolutely ticking every box. But there's something about that that's irritating to people who are in the flow. So I have my question, the checklist, how come it's not instituted everywhere? I think really and truly, well, I think there's several reasons. Like you said, they can be cumbersome, but they can also be streamlined. And for example, you know what the number one thing on I'd like to see on a pre-surgical checklist? Patient identification. (laughs) That is number one for a very good reason. Nobody likes the wrong animal neutered. You got two black labs looking at you. You really don't want to be neutering that champion field trial dog. Really don't want that happening. I feel like it's a situation of we are super, super, super smart until we're not. Right. And like there, you're the most brilliant mind in the world. But on that weird day, it presented with two animals that look almost exactly the same. Yeah. And all that has to happen is somebody went through and cleaned kennels and moved two white cats. Now suddenly the white cat in the upper right-hand cage is not the white cat that you think it is. If that happens, and that has happened, the wrong animal goes home. And I've got some fairly amusing stories about sending the wrong animal home, and we really, really don't want to be doing that. We don't want, right. We don't want to open anybody up to personal uh, liability. Right. And so these things, well, on the cumbersome side, but a good pre-surgical checklist, it's not going to take you a long time to go through it. The second time you're going to double check your patient identification and keep working down, you know, what procedure are we doing on this animal? Do we have, you know, medication issues to be concerned with, et cetera, as you work your way down your checklists. Today's show is brought to you by Vetex International. Now, are people the major pain point in your practice? If so, you're not alone. Over 90% of managers report staff problems to be their number one issue. At the root of this problem are usually three dysfunctions. A poorly articulated vision, toxic culture, or some form of leadership breakdown. If this sounds familiar, then do not despair. Help is at hand. I encourage you to check out Leaders, a veterinary-specific leadership training program where you will learn how to create and execute on a shared vision, how to hire well, and build a powerful, high-performance practice culture without all the drama. The class is accredited, delivered online, and open for applications now. To learn more, listen to a free training webinar, or apply, visit vetxinternational.com forward slash leaders. Okay, welcome back to the show. I hope you enjoyed part one. Let's get into some more meaty content to help you grow your practice in part two. 
have you in recommending either in practices you've worked at or in, or in people you've consulted with, have you recommended these kind of procedures and systems and what sort of pushback do you get? Well, you start out with pushback because it's going to take more time. Yes. It's, you're going to start out with pushback, but you always have to remind people what we're trying to do is prevent the preventable. That's what systems do. We prevent the preventable. So when you look at the amount of time that black Labrador lawsuit is going to take you, that extra six minutes you spent on the checklist doesn't look like very much time at all. So you just have to remind yourself what you are saving in time, not what you're spending in time, but what you are potentially saving in time. And people can see the value in it. They really can. They, they might be a little bit grudging about it, but they can see the value. I feel like checklists presented in onboarding, this is a place where checklists in education and training at the beginning of a person's tenure, either in a place or in general, their schooling. If this is their first time as a receptionist, their first time in practice as a, as a tech, if it's their first job as an assistant, if they're right out of school as a DVM, like, oh, we've got procedures for this. You want to learn all our procedures for this. And then it's kind of like, it's just the, it's like the, it's presented as the training wheels. All these checklists and these sheets and everything, you're going to internalize them and you're not going to have to think about it anymore. It's not going to need to be printed out. Have you seen places that that is the case where this stuff, there are things, but they're really for the beginners and they're not sort of printed out or, or people don't talk about these procedures all the time. What you're really getting around is to what we call habitual noncompliance. <laughs> it has a name. And the airline people do not like habitual noncompliance <laughs> because you know what? You check that anesthesia machine on the previous procedure for leaks, do you really need to do it again today? Or is your right. habit that you just check it once a day, every day? Well, I just checked it yesterday and it was fine. And we just checked it, it was fine. And you drift into not checking it. When you drift into habitual noncompliance, now you may be going into surgery with compromised equipment. So habitual noncompliance, is a, it's a slow fuse. You know, it that can just burn along with no consequences for weeks or months. But then when there is a consequence, then you're in trouble and you could have prevented it. So that's one of the things we like to talk about initially is the high risk of habitual noncompliance. Yeah, you can have the checklist memorized and you go through it every day and it doesn't make any difference year after year. And you know what? That's great. That's absolutely great because you are preventing the preventable. So keep using them. It's a pain, but it makes a difference in patient safety. And it makes a difference in lawsuit prevention. Like I said, number one, identify your patient. That is so protective of the practice. So as it pertains to business, so the lawsuit prevention makes sense. What other business ramifications come from so if people aren't doing this or they have lapsed into these the habitual noncompliance and they think, oh, we need to get this back on track, as you said, it takes more time. You can get faster. And here is the time we're dealing with right now. So practices are saying they're short-staffed. Practices are saying demand is extremely high. Anything that slows down 
could spook people because they are trying to help as many people as they can. They're trying to get things done as efficiently as possible. And what you're talking about is slowing down. So when it comes to the culture of a business or the ramification on efficiency or revenue, what have you seen or what do you anticipate to see by people who aren't doing this, who try to step this up? Okay. One of the things that gets talked about and one of my particular areas of interest is the workplace environment. And when we talk about a positive workplace environment, one of the first things that comes out is that people feel psychologically safe there, that you know you're not going to be emotionally beat up by errors and mistakes. So when you do a proper analysis, as opposed to blaming people, when you do what's called a root cause analysis, when people know they're not going to be blamed, but we are going to improve the systems, they feel so much more confident about coming to you and saying, I think I just made a mistake. I think I gave that animal the wrong medication. They feel psychologically safe because they know they're not going to be yelled at. They know that we're going to fix the situation and move forward from there. So you create a team that is that feels good about their workplace. And when you feel good about your workplace, you stay there. You really improve the overall culture of your practice with the psychological safety that your team will feel when you're analyzing errors instead of blaming. And that way people know I need to do these things. It keeps my patients safe. It increases the likelihood of a good outcome for my patient. If I skip this, I am putting my patient at risk. And if I phrase it to you that way, if I skip these things, you are putting your patient at risk and we don't want that. You really get compliance. Is it your impression in talking about these ideas through the years that people will be proactive about it? They'll get excited by what you just said, which is, hey, you're going to build a better workplace culture. People are are going to be happier and they're going to feel more safe to talk about their errors quicker so you can take action on it. And if you do this root cause thing, people won't feel like they're getting, you know, blamed and scapegoated for things. And and it kind of psychologically runs them down on the job. People feel like they're an entire team together trying to do the best job. Yeah. Trying to do the best for their patients. And, you know, you need the team to be thinking, I'm doing the best for my individual patient. And that makes you know, and we can call it something of a burden, the checklists, but it becomes less of a burden when you know I'm keeping my patients safe. Have you seen, is it usually a proactive move to make things better for everybody? Or is it a scared straight situation where something goes wrong and that's the first time someone finally puts the brakes on and says, let's look at why this happened. So if if you've ever been involved in these kinds of decision-making, that decision-making process working one way or the other, is it your impression it's sort of a, a positive impetus? We want to make things better. Or it's a negative, holy crap, this didn't work last time, or this is terrible. We, it's so bad, we need to stop. Both, actually. You know, I do see this toxic workplace culture. And what I often see is practice owners who don't understand how they got there. This is a big component of that workplace culture. And when people know that the errors are going to be dealt with by an analysis instead of a blame, everyone has a sigh of relief. And I want to circle back to what I talked about, the second victim, because the second victim, the first victim 
of a medical error, obviously, is our patient. The second victim is the person who has to live with the aftermath of having made a preventable error. And those are the kinds of things that can eat at your soul. And these people need support. They don't need blame. They're already busy blaming themselves. What they need is support through these things. So there's there's two parts of patient safety. One is making sure that the second victim gets the support that they need. And two, that we put procedures in place to prevent it from happening again instead of just blaming someone and going on doing things the same way we always have. Can I ask for your criticism or feedback on, I'm going to present the devil's advocate counter argument to what mm-hmm. you ju- literally what you just told me. So the old school story that gets told, and I don't know how often this is actually real, is um, new graduate comes out, they go out to their first job. The expectation of the practice owner or the senior veterinarian there is, you know what, when you come out of school, you're going to make mistakes and that's just how it goes. You're going to make a mistake somewhere along the line and an animal is going to be hurt or die. And that is part of... That's what we've all taken on. And so it's sort of like the grin and bear it kind of thing. So as you said, not necessarily being blamed. So the person comes through and says, oh my God, I made this mistake. The attitude of, right, well, you won't make that mistake again. So kind of like the sort of the school of hard knocks. There's no checklist. You can't circumvent this. You got to feel how bad it is to make these mistakes and sort of like leading people into the the horror so that they never want to go there again. Like they're kind of like, you get these veterinarians, you're like, it's like a puppy. They're rubbing their nose in the poop. So, oh, you won't do this again, will you? Do you hear people do that? Or have you seen that kind of attitude to this? Actually, there is that attitude. But what I see more is that there is an assumption of what went wrong. So I'll give you an example of that. So let's say, and, and I, I heard another doctor give this example. So it really did happen, but I'm giving it to you secondhand. So I may be getting the details a little bit off. But there was a group of practices. And in one practice, I think over like a four-month time span, something like that, they had three jaws broken when they were doing dental extractions. Yeah. So that's a lot. And it happened to be the same doctor. And so I was relaying this story to another veterinarian. And he looked at me and said, oh, that's the doctor. He needs to learn better technique. Clearly, he's not doing it right because he had three broken jaws. So we have made our assumption because nobody else was digging on that animal's jaw. He broke the jaws. He's at fault. And he got it wrong. But when they did an analysis and they looked at this person's training and they looked at the people assisting and they looked at the equipment, lo and behold, they found that somehow or other, nobody was sharpening the dental equipment. So the doctor was working with dull tools, therefore putting more pressure on the jaw. So it wasn't technique, it was tools. Do you think it's easy enough for people, once something, a mistake has been made, for people to sit back and do this root cause analysis of a situation? Or is this the kind of thing itself requires a checklist? In other words, does the average team, they all know the questions you could ask about the equipment, about the time of day, about who did it, about what was the, you know, what, what was the staffing at the time, what was going on, how is this case different than other cases? 
Or do you think this, even this idea of having checklists or, or doing the root cause analysis, that itself needs a checklist? It just needs a procedure in place that you, and number one on your root cause analysis is the example I just gave. Don't assume you know what happened. That's number one. You have to go in with an open mind. And if you don't have an open mind on it, find somebody else on the team who does. But in general, in smaller practices, you're going to have perhaps either the medical director or practice owner and your practice manager do the analysis. And you're going to interview everybody who was involved. And then you're going to look at the different areas that can feed into a bad outcome and do a complete investigation. And you can lump like circumstances together. In other words, we had three broken jaws. We don't have to pick apart each one. (laughs) We can go, okay, we've had a lot of broken jaws. Let's see what's similar here. Okay, we have the same doctor doing them. We have, you know, then you can lump like events together when you realize, you know what, we are seeing a lot of whatever it is, incorrect medications being sent home. Okay, we've got a a problem and all those incidences can be lumped together. And then you can start looking at what do they have in common, where the breakdown point is. And when you find that, then you can create a system to fix it. If you had your druthers, if you step in as a practice manager at a a newer existing practice and they're like, oh, we want to do this. Do you decide to go on the hunt for checklist templates or procedure templates, or do you take the time, and it does take a lot of time, to ask people how they're doing things now and how they avoid mistakes, and you sort of build these things from scratch? There's plenty available out there. For example, it's for human medicine, but if you go to the World Health Organization website Uh and Google their pre-surgical checklist, it just about translates beautifully to veterinary medicine. Don't even have to reinvent the wheel. Just go grab that one. World Health Organization has it all refined. And number one on their checklist, identify your patient. <laughs> What's your name? What's yeah. your date of birth? Yeah. What, I mean, uh, what procedure do you, yeah, what procedure are we doing today? But at any rate, and it's not a terribly long one. I mean, you can get through that one probably in five minutes, six minutes. And you can feel really confident moving forward from there. So these things are available if they don't have them already. Lots of practices have really great procedures in place to make sure the correct medication at the correct strength goes home. There's a variety of procedures you can put in place for that. And once you have a system, then you don't have errors. Because like I said, people will always make mistakes. So we need systems. Want to learn more about the long-term benefits of patient safety? Hit up Tracy at tracycheff, S-H-E-F-F, at gmail.com. That wraps up today's episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show. It was an honor to share it with you. If you enjoyed it, we would love it if you leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends in veterinary medicine about us. Want a little more? You are in luck. An extended version of this podcast is available exclusively to our leaders community. You can learn more at vetxinternational.com. And until next time, I just want you to know, I appreciate you.